You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Chris Samula, who is using Strapi Fast API and Gatsby to create an online course building service. Chris, welcome to the show. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate it. No problem. Very happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting folks know a little bit more about your service? Sure. So I'm Chris. Uh, I'm a developer and I've, I've worked at various companies in the past, uh, health tech, fintech in particular. And I've also been an online course author for a couple of years. I teach uh, a course on testing and monitoring machine learning models and deploying machine learning models with my co-author Soleil Gali, who's a, a powerful data scientist. And um, after going through that process uh, and and thinking about, okay, setting up these courses outside of marketplaces on a white label site of my own, uh, I I didn't find a platform that really did what I wanted, that had everything that I was looking for. And so Course Maker was was born out of that during the sort of lockdown time in London. And yeah, hacked away on it evenings and weekends for a while. And then we launched in beginning of February this year, 2021. And that's kind of where we are now. So early stage, we've got our first couple of hundred early users. Um, and yeah, we're, we're just enjoying improving things and, and seeing the product and platform uh, get brought to life. Awesome. Yeah, I love those stories where it sounds like you built this for yourself first and then turned it into a SaaS app afterwards? Or did you like go at this one where you knew you were going to make it a SaaS app even before you started coding it? I was pretty sure that I, I wanted to make it a SaaS app when I started coding it, but it was obviously quite informed by the search process I'd been through when evaluating what the options were and n- knowing going into it uh, the challenges that I faced as a course author. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I basically went down the same route, right? Where it's kind of nice to build your own thing because, yeah, I looked at all of them and it was just like, they all they were not perfect. A lot of them are good enough, but like, yeah, just missing some features and stuff. Yeah, and I, I really wanted to do some things that would be a, a real nod to the, the technical course author, things like code execution in the browser and, you know, great code syntax highlighting and being able to put math in there and, uh, you know, the, the sorts of things which a generic platform... Uh, is less inclined to do. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned working on this one nights and weekends. Do you have a rough idea of how long it took you to go from just empty folder to shipping an MVP? Yeah, it was probably six months, uh, yeah, from empty folder to opening it up for uh, people to use. Right, and when you launched it initially, was it just set up to be a little bit of a temporary thing where there was no multi-tenancy and it was kind of just made for you or were you basically like tenant number one? I was tenant number one, but when I opened it up, uh, it was with with a view to bringing people onto the platform immediately. Nice. And uh, as for developing it, you've been working on this yourself then, or did you have someone else working on it with you, coding-wise? I've had a few different contractors who've worked on it with me as well. Uh, so that's that's why I use the, the, the term we, although it is to some extent the royal we, uh, because yeah, there's probably been three or four folks who've, who've helped me on and off but uh, yeah, the, the majority of the work has, has been me, but there are a few spots where it was great to, to bring some other expertise in as well. Interesting. Do you want to give a couple of examples of when you decided to bring someone in versus coding it for yourself? And, and also like the reasons behind that, was it just to get it done faster or just like some really tricky parts? Yeah, I wanted to 
do the the infrastructure side, the DevOps side, really well for this project. So I brought uh, someone in to help me out with you know using Terraform so that we could set things up properly for the project uh, and setting up on AWS things like the Elastic Container Service with Fargate tasks because we knew pretty early on that we'd want to do some kind of bit more unusual things uh, with with the infrastructure. Um, so that was definitely one area where it was good to get help. Uh, although I, I started out my career on the front end, I fairly quickly uh, sort of moved over to the back end. So I did also bring in someone else to, to help out with some of the, um, the React app, uh, which is what the authors use. But I, I've since then um, done quite a bit on, on the front end as well. And I... I, those are probably the the two main areas. Um, there there are a few features here and there where others have helped. Nice. Yeah, it sounds like we're going to have a lot of great stuff to talk about. But uh, let's begin by first going over, I guess, a TLDR on what motivated you to use your tech stack, because it sounds like you're using all sorts of different things here, right? We have Strapi, FastAPI, Gatsby, React, etc. Do you want to go over what led you to that decision? Yeah, uh, so FastAPI was something that, I'd been hearing a lot about and had been reading really good things. And I'm a Pythonista. Uh, that's the language I feel most comfortable with. So it, I think that that made sense. Uh, I, I knew that we were going to have a complex front end with React. So we, we weren't going to need like the templating functionality of a, a Django, for example. And yeah, I, I was keen to, to try it over Flask. Um, although I, I, you know, the, the, the true indie hacker bootstrappers would say, you know, use what you're completely familiar with. So I guess I, I broke the rule there, but I had a lot of fun doing it. And I, I don't think I'd, I'd go back to Flask now. I've, I'm completely sold on fast API. So that's, that's been a, a really useful learning opportunity. And in fact, I've just updated one of my courses to switch out, uh, Flask API for, sorry, to switch out Flask for fast API. Um, so definitely not just talking the talk, but walking the walk as well in, in what I'm doing. Uh, and then in terms of the other bits of technology, so chatting with, with some of the, the people I was working with, you know, we knew that there was going to be quite a few features required to make an effective platform, even even MVP level. And so there, there was the option of sort of building out all this sort of standard CMS functionality. We didn't really fancy doing that, so we thought, okay, one option would be to go with a headless CMS. And so then, like looking around at the options there, uh, we eventually settled on Strapi because it was open source, and we were able to get something running with it really fast uh, compared to some of the alternatives. It's very flexible. There are a few gotchas with with Strapi that we can get into that we've uh, since stumbled across uh, as as the code base has grown but uh, it at the same time it's definitely saved a lot of time during during the development uh, and then in the other technologies so we need we knew that we'd need an app for the authors to build their courses a ui and so that's just a, a standard react app but then in terms of building the the student sites we wanted to make deploying them as as simple as possible and so we, we thought if we can make them just static sites, uh, there's a lot of advantages to doing that. They'll be fast. It'll 
probably make things like the hosting and everything cheaper. And so we were looking at static site generators and Gatsby, as we were digging through the options, had this really powerful ecosystem around it. If there's something you want to do on a Gatsby site, there's probably a plugin for it. And then there's the, the shadowing functionality that we use as well because we've open sourced the sort of core Gatsby theme that we make use of. And you can actually use that theme to create a core site and host it on whatever your hosting provider of, of choice is. We then add on a, a few proprietary layers using the Gatsby shadowing. And based on that, we can create and easily host potentially many, many different sites for the students to use. So that that was sort of the thought process there. It's like, how are we going to work with the headless CMS? Well, static sites and using GraphQL. And um, that, that was how we, we landed there. There are a few downside as well that we can that we can get into. But um, yeah, that was that was the journey. Okay. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting journey. And I never would have thought to make the student site to be a static site. That's a really that's a really good idea. And it makes a lot of sense. Like, does that mean though that you're generating basically so I've never used Gatsby firsthand, by the way, but I've used static site generators. But does that mean that you are basically generating a new custom uh, directory of files for every course that ends up being created on your platform through Gatsby? Uh, yeah, that's right. That's that's really cool. And when it comes to like the strappy stuff, I you know, like I've heard of it before. I know that it's like, you know, a quote unquote headless CMS, but like, what does that translate to for you in the end? Like, how does that help you? I guess the question is, is, is that used as something like an alternative to fast API just to build a certain type of application faster? Yeah. So the, the way we separate things out is anything to do with the, the student site. So, you know, the, the different fields that are going to be populated, things that might be queried in the static site generator through GraphQL, those, that data and those fields go into the, the headless CMS to Strapi. And then things that are more specific to the platform, things like auth, um, payments, that kind of thing, then that goes through fast API. Okay. Yeah, that makes total sense now. Okay, so we really basically have two almost totally separate applica applications to, to talk about, right? The authoring side and the watching side. Yep. All right. Uh, do you have a preference on which one you want to go over first, backend or, you know, the authoring or the watching? Well, let's let's start with uh, with watching then and, and fast API. Which which part of the, the Gatsby setup should we talk about? So when I think static site generator, I've, I've only worked with ones like Jekyll in the past. And, you know, there's really no concept of being able to query a backend database in, in, you know, a way that you would be able to do it, I guess you can say secure, securely, right? Are you able to, like, I'm trying to think about this from the point of view of, you know, watching a course where you might have a table of contents on the right or something like that. And let's say that I'm watching video number one of 50 and I just finished watching video one. Uh, can you do things like showing that, hey, I just finished video one, like I, I marked it off as checked. And then like that state is saved somewhere in a database and updated it in the UI. Yeah, I mean, the, the way we do it right now is uh, with with the Gatsby sites, there's there's a fair bit of stuff that's, you know, using browser local storage and that sort of thing to give people, give students the understanding of, okay, they've progressed this far, they've watched this video. Uh, we will add the ability to actually um, store that on the server side as well um, over time. But... Um, yeah, that's that's what you need. Or in terms of the the watching, that's what Gatsby gives you right now. I guess 
the, the main sort of flow that you've got is that with a Gatsby site, you've got to worry about the, the building. Um, it, do, do you want to talk about that? Sure. Yeah, we can get into that as well as like, I think permissionings would be interesting as well. Like, how do you know that a student is enrolled for that specific course? Yeah, so we have um, basically JWT auth um, with the, the student site. So it's kind of token based and all the, the auth and everything goes through Fast API. And when authors in the author app want to rebuild their, their site, there's basically a build command, uh, build endpoint that goes to Fast API and that triggers uh, on the server a Gatsby build command. The, the way that we, we've set this up is, is kind of, it was, it was probably one of the more innovative parts of the project. It was, it was a, a fun thing to, to work on. We, we have an AWS Lambda, um, which runs the, the Gatsby build. So the, we have um, basically a, a Docker image, which has Node.js and, and Gatsby installed. Um, and then what that Lambda will do is make a, a query to Strapi and, and say, hey, I, I'm about to run Gatsby build, fetch me all the content, all the, the latest changes for this particular static site, and then it will run the build in, in the Lambda and then deploy that so that it's, uh, you know, updates the S3 bucket where the data lives, where the, the files live, and a little bit of little bit of magic with DNS and, and that sort of thing. And that's how you end up with an updated student site, an updated Gatsby site. So that, that was one of the, the things that we battled with because the downside to having a build run in, in the Lambda like that is that it does take a bit of time. It takes about a minute for, for that to run. And if you're in the author app and, you know, you want to, make a small change, like let's say you want to update a lecture, then you don't want to wait a minute uh, to sort of preview that and see how it looks. So we've also set up, as well as that that build functionality, a preview functionality. And the way that works is that uh, we actually use the Elastic Container Service. So we have this cluster. And when an author clicks on start the preview, then a new Fargate task starts up and we get a new pod and we have to do a few things like creating a DNS entry for the, the task. We have to trigger to spin up the pod. This this is all, by the way, using the, the new image-based tasks as well. Uh, so we have a, a an image that has to be fetched. And then once that pod's created, it's a, a sort of short-running pod we, we run it for 30 minutes and then it will automatically shut down but that assuming that the the author isn't using it of course and so that then is something that the author can open up in another browser tab and see okay here's here's what i've just changed and that gives you that that more immediate feedback because that refreshes every 10 seconds oh very nice does that just end up generating like a random subdomain that they can access on whatever domain that it's being hosted from yeah, basically, yeah, it's a sort of randomly generated DNS entry, and we sort of disguise some of that. So they, as as far as the author knows, they're just clicking on the the preview, but they they will see it in their their browser bar, and what they're actually looking at then is an iframe uh, where we just mark it as a a preview, 
and so it'll be sort of randomly generated string dot previews dot course maker dot org um, with a with the the iframe of their site running in preview mode with with Gatsby preview, uh, and that's updating every ten seconds. So that's that's a really that that gets you that immediate feedback, and that's kind of re-implementing part of what you get in Gatsby Cloud, which is the the sort of Gatsby proprietary solution, their their cloud solution. So yeah, that's that's been interesting as well, having to sort of re-implement some parts of of what the Gatsby company itself does. Yeah, for sure. So you know, I'm not super in detail knowledge of what Gatsby can do, but is there an like a concept of a plugin system or like extensions? And if so, like what types of extensions are you using to build the site? Very much so. It's it's got Gatsby's got a really rich plugin ecosystem. It's one of the 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 main reasons that we went with Gatsby. It's it's very vibrant. There's a plugin for for most things that you can imagine or would want to do. And you know, I'll give you a few examples of those for example with the the basics of things that you might want to do so like let's say google analytics there's a gatsby plugin for that to make it nice and easy um let's say that you want to do image resizing you know there's there's plugins for that you want to be able to work with markdown markdown and this this is all stuff that is sort of quite standard in the gatsby ecosystem as well there's lots of tutorials and it's it's quite easy to work with. Uh, I'm just having a look at some of the the plugins that we're making use of, so I can give you a few uh, examples of maybe some of the less obvious ones. Oh, you know things like generating canonical URLs, um, putting a robots.txt in, working with S3, uh, setting things that you might might want to set for SEO purposes. Other other little touches like working with files, embedding tweets. Uh, the, you know, it's there's such a a powerful ecosystem of, of plugins. It's one of the the reasons why we went with Gatsby instead of let's say you know Hugo is is written in in Go, so it's faster but doesn't have the same ecosystem. Uh, and there's there's always the next generation coming along many different options to choose from but i i think on balance we're, we're pretty happy with the the gatsby choice yeah it almost sounds like you know from an outside perspective that you are getting benefits of what you would get almost if you were to code your app in like an actual dynamic like backend language and you had like a server running yeah yeah definitely that's really cool and now you know for the the backend that gatsby does talk to for certain things you mentioned that is using fast api right do you want to go over maybe some of the libraries that you're using on the Python side of things to get that API server up and running besides Fast API? Yeah, sure. I mean, we've got uh, for all the database stuff, SQL Alchemy and, and Alembic, the sort of standard combination there for working with AWS. We got Botto3. Uh, we use Logaroo, which is a really cool library to simplify Python logging, which is sometimes a bit of a pain. Uh, we use GQL for making GraphQL queries uh, to Strapi, and um, for some of the the sort of internal admin tooling, we use this cool library called Docopt, which auto generates like a CLI for you, just based on doc strings being in a certain format. That's that's quite a nice touch. Ah, that's very cool. So when it comes to creating something like a CLI, 
is that something you can do on the watching side of things? Because like I can't imagine watching a video course in my terminal unless we're not talking videos here. Is there like lecture notes that people can download, like markdown files or whatever? Yeah, I mean the for the the CLI stuff, that's that's more in internal, right? So you know if, if I'm uh, looking to generate a dashboard, for example, to show me what authors are how much progress they're making with building their courses and that sort of thing. So that, that's what I've used the internal CLI stuff for. Um, but in terms of markdown and downloading files, that, that sort of thing, that's all supported by the course maker platform. So authors have the choice of with, with any given lecture, it can be a combination of video or files or markdown or interactive coding. They, they write the text in markdown and then that gets rendered in the student site using the Gatsby MDX Markdown plugin. Very nice. So, by the way, when it comes to the watching experience, uh, when a student is watching a video, did you end up using your own custom video player, or did you use some third-party library for that one? Yeah, so on the video side, we we host the, the videos, I mean, the, the raw files uh, in S3, AWS S3, and, and then... Uh, we use Cloudflare as our video streaming provider, uh, so that just ensures that you know the the video is of a, a good quality. They can um, handle the the transcoding process, and then on the the front end, the the video player itself, we use what's called the Shaka player, uh, which I, I forget who uh, develops that, but it's it's one of the the big ones. And the advantage of the Shaka player is that working with the the Cloudflare API, you can define the the bit rate that's acceptable, and and again, just sort of give some some guarantees about the quality of the video. Very nice. And when it comes to like the permissioning on those videos themselves, do you have something set up to where it's like, okay, it's going to be valid for this IP address for the next hour, or you know, some duration greater than the video length? Yeah, basically. So Cloudflare gives you the ability to have signed video URLs. So there's a, a sort of signature request process for authenticated students in order for them to be able to view the video that, that goes on. Very nice. Because yeah, I actually didn't even know that Cloudflare offered video streaming like that as a service. Is that part of their free plan or did you have to go for the paid plan for that? You have to pay for it, but you, you it's a sort of metered plan where you pay for what you use. And um, yeah, there's quite a few providers out there for video, but we went with Cloudflare because We'd had good experiences with their other products, and um, it's reasonably priced. The thing that I wish they would implement, though, that I've been uh, emailing their support and everything about is I, I'm, I'm waiting for them to have the auto-generation of subtitles. That would be great. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's very handy to have for sure. Although, yeah, I don't know how well it's going to turn out on like a phase one release, because even YouTube's like auto-generated captions and stuff were usually... Pretty good, but still, you know, you run into those tech terms where it's just like way off. It's true. Yeah, you, you do need to give people the ability to edit the transcript after it's after it's been made. Because, yeah, you're right, especially on those those tech terms, then the the auto transcription trips up. Yeah, it almost looks like it went through like a Google Translate back when Google Translate was actually really bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So on that video player, so I've never used that specific library before. Have you done any modifications to it to kind of like give your video player experience like a, I guess like a unique type of 
UI in some extent, like certain features you might not see in a standard video player, like being able to, I don't know, add custom notes at a certain point in time in the video. Uh, I mean, the video player gives you a lot of the, the functionality you need out of the box. So, you know, you can play it at different speeds. If you if you have uploaded a, a transcript file, you can select, toggle whether you want the, the subtitles on or off, and you can toggle the, the quality that the video will play at. We don't have the ability to uh, sort of add custom notes to, to videos yet, but that's that's on our sort of long list of, of features. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I haven't used your platform firsthand. Is there anything interesting about just like the course watching experience as a student, you know, some features that you might want to talk about and how it's in- implemented? I guess the, the fact that you get this variety of different media as you're, you're going through this as a student. So, yes, you, you're watching videos, but that's combined either with different lectures or even in the same lecture you can have a video introduction and then markdown text and then an interactive coding exercise right so there there's uh, a widget embedded in the site with the ace editor that's totally interactive that gives you things like auto completion and you you do your code submissions and you get that interactivity so that that's uh, I, I really feel like with online ed- education, we're moving more and more towards interactivity and, and gamification. Yes, video is, is really powerful, but if you can combine it with, with more interactive methods, then I, I think that that can be a way for, for people to learn faster and more effectively. So I guess that that's a, a key feature of the the watching experience. So this is a little bit off topic, but have you taken a look at Stripe's documentation recently? Yes, yes, I've been spending quite a bit of time with Stripe and their documentation recently. Nice. Yeah, I only bring that up because the way they've been presenting that one, it seemed like a really interesting idea to consume uh, written documentation, sort of, right? Because it was like they have the main code on the right, but then like this highlighted explanation of each line of code on the left. And I thought that that was really neat. Like I was thinking about doing something like that in my cross platform as well. Yeah, yeah, that can be really powerful. I've been mulling over the, the same thing actually, um, how to to add those sorts of annotations because they can be quite helpful. Yeah, especially like if I mean I don't know if you find it to be the same way, but folks who usually sign up for a video course like to watch videos, but having the text reference there is really nice for like the second time around, like you know after they've watched it at least once. Absolutely, and you know having easy links to source code and, and that sort of thing always helps in a, in a tech course. Yeah. By the way, uh, speaking of payments and Stripe though, uh, do you happen to use Stripe for your payments or something else? Yes, we use Stripe. Uh, we have integrations with Stripe and Paddle. So with Stripe, it's via Stripe Connect. So you basically connect your existing Stripe account. Uh, and then that means that when a student is paying for something and you've got Stripe connected, then everything's going to your Stripe account, you the the course author. So the advantage there is that you manage everything and uh, it, that keeps the fees really low, right? It's just, just the Stripe fee. Then there's, there's some things that we've done that we've worked on to improve the experience. So with reporting, for example, one of the, the challenges, especially if you're selling to students who are in the EU, is uh, EU VAT. You've got to report on that. And so one of the things that we did 
with course maker on, on the reporting side was just set up all the the tax rates in in the, the stripe connected account with a, a little bit of metadata so that we know that it's it's something that course makers has generated and based on that stripe checkout now uh, automatically updates with any uh, eu or uk vat based on whatever billing address that the student enters as they go through the checkout process. So that means that the reports that you get within your you as an author Stripe dashboard are updated with with the tax, and you can set that to either be inclusive or exclusive uh, of the, the price that you're charging for your course or your, your membership, because we do offer both sort of one-time purchase courses and memberships if you want to turn your your site into a membership site. So that's that's using uh, Stripe, and then we've recently added Paddle as well, which is a merchant of record, meaning that they act entirely as the the responsible party for the the transaction. So that means Paddle remits the the tax to any government for you. So that's a really powerful way to to do things. I mean, they they charge a little more in terms of the fees, but it means that you don't have to worry about the administration. So the way the way I I sort of advise people, uh, authors who are setting up a course is, you know, if you're just starting out and you're not sure if if the whole course thing is going to work, then something like Stripe is great because you can get get set up with it super fast and it's nice and easy to use. And then if you are getting like more serious about the the course then something like paddle to to handle all the tax for you is is quite attractive and then if you're right at the other end of the spectrum and you've already got a whole setup and you've already got your own accountant and you're you're kind of used to doing like a sales tax return and and that sort of thing maybe maybe you could um, go with stripe in in that situation because you can take the reports and just hand them over to your your accountant yeah there's definitely uh it's beneficial to have that because i yeah, if you accept something like Stripe and PayPal, I know on the PayPal side of things, it's if you happen to have one PayPal email address that you use for multiple things, it's kind of tricky to get just like your core sales out of it. Like it's it's a very time consuming process of parsing CSVs and making sure it's correct. Yeah. So it'd be cool to have that automated. By the way, so yeah, it sounds like you have a very, not complicated, but you know, a very well thought out and feature filled payment system. Do you want to maybe go into some details of what you've done on the back end to kind of abstract away being able to accept payments through Stripe and Paddle at the same time? Like, did you build your own like billing module where it kind of just hits either API backend based on whatever option the user chose? Right. Yeah. We do have an abstraction layer that sits on top of that. So we, in our sort of data model, we have the, the concept of an enrollment and then that is an abstraction on top of the, the payment provider. And so it's possible then to, to switch back and forth very easily with one-time payments. It's a bit more complex for, for memberships, as, as you can imagine. Um, but yeah, that, that was something that we did put quite a bit of thought into, as well as as well as the automation with things like the tax. So we, we won um, $25,000 of Stripe credit, actually, for some code that we open-sourced around how to do the EU VAT tax stuff with Stripe, um, just because... I think Stripe was running like a build in public competition and we were talking about the scripts that we'd written and, and sort of open sourced some of the, the code there. So that's that's worth checking out if you are battling with Stripe, which 
probably every every listener who is working with a SaaS platform that has customers in the EU will, will probably have to deal with that at some point if they're using Stripe. Um, so just putting it out there that that, that might help you out. It's, I guess that the main gotcha there is you've got to make sure that you uh, in the in the metadata tag that any tax rates you've created are from your platform just in case you need to uh, remove them later so that's something that we we figured out uh, through the process um, so yeah a, a bit of advice there first off uh, yeah congratulations on that one getting a call out from stripe and the 25k credits is is amazing to see yeah thanks no i mean i'm a big stripe fan i think patrick collison is a really amazing CEO, uh, you, you see him on Hacker News, like responding to comments within a few minutes. I mean, the guy's a billionaire who could be on the beach drinking Mai Tais, but he's not. He's still hustling, still working hard. And I mean, obviously drinking drinking Mai Tais on the beach gets boring pretty quick, but like, you, you, you take my point, right? He's, he's, uh, he's an impressive dude. And also, I've always been impressed by like the customer service of Stripe. When, whenever I've had a problem, you know, you, you get to talk to a human within a few minutes and they are very knowledgeable. They have the tools and processes to be able to help you quickly. I just I just wish that more companies like my bank or my utilities company could could offer that kind of service. Yeah. In a funny way, it's like Stripe has ruined it for everyone because they're so much better than a lot of other companies. Now you have to use these other ones and it's like, oh, the bar has been set so high already. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there's a part of me that feels like the bar Stripe set is the sort of the reasonable bar for customer service and everybody else just kind of sucks. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, when it comes to this tax stuff, so, you know, I'm not familiar with like individual tax rates for every European country, but, you know, I know in the US, the tax rates per state varies tremendously and it's not even per state, right? It's like per county. I don't know. There's some crazy number. There was, there, there's like 60,000 different uh, tax rates in the U.S. alone or something like that? Like, how do you end up getting the correct percentage based on where the student is located in the EU? So the script that I mentioned has the different tax rates. We've, there's a, a little library called PyVAT, Python library, that has the different rates. We obviously need to keep that updated as rates change. But with the EU, it's, it's a sort of manageable number of countries. I forget the exact number, but it's around 30. Um, and then there's... Now, now that the UK has left the EU, then we, we do a separate bolt-on for the, the UK as well and fetch the uh, the rates from the, the UK government site. So it's it's manageable. It's not the, the same level of complexity as US sales tax where you have, I don't know how many jurisdictions, but certainly hundreds, right, potentially. And that, that was really why we, we prioritized getting the paddle alternative as well, because if you just don't want to deal with US sales tax, which is quite understandable, then Paddle just handles that for you. And it's the same if you're working in other countries as well, like selling to people in India. You don't want to worry about Indian GST uh, or same in Australia, Japan. There, there are many different flavors of sales tax around the world. And that's that's one advantage of, of Paddle that they just take care of that for you. I mean, I'm hopeful... I don't know if you heard the news, but it was sort of a month or two ago that Stripe acquired TaxJar. So I am hopeful, actually, that Stripe is going to start taking care of this for you as well. But even even with powerful Stripe, it'll take them probably 
a year to integrate all the the text jar functionality into their various products so that, that'll be quite a colossal undertaking yeah for sure i didn't know they made that acquisition but uh, good to know that maybe the ball is moving forward for that yeah because up until now understandably stripe has been hesitant right like imagine you're in the boardroom and, and somebody says hey shall we take on the tax liability to every government of every country that we operate in it's it's probably going to go down like a lead balloon but with the tax jar acquisition there's there's now hope which is great yeah for sure by the way earlier you mentioned that you are using stripe checkout did you end up doing like a pros and cons versus using that versus elements directly so you know like building your own checkout page basically yeah i mean quite quickly i think we were we were convinced that stripe checkout was just going to be a lot faster for us to implement so yeah that it wasn't it wasn't a particularly difficult one to figure out because it it just it's it's so simple to set up with checkout whereas with elements i mean it's admittedly still like a great product but with just speed of iteration um checkout made the most sense right because i haven't used paddle firsthand but are they similar like stripe or they have their own hosted checkout or is it more you can also pick it's it's a similar product to the to the stripe checkout so it's it's hosted and there's a, a little paddle library uh, it's it's not quite like Stripe JS, but certainly on on the server side, there's a there's some some paddle clients that you can work with as well. Um, so yeah, it's it's one of those things where like like you were saying before, you get a bit spoiled with Stripe. You know the the level of quality with the Stripe documentation. It's it's not really there with paddle. You have to sort of play around with things a bit more. But it's it's workable, and for the benefit you get, then it the the, the work is it certainly pays off. Right. And by the way, for your backend, so like the course creation and the payment side of things, I mean, I'm trying to get an idea here, like how big that code base might be. Do you have like a, an example of maybe how many Python modules you have or lines or something like that? So lines of code, probably backend is about 20,000 lines of code spread over maybe 100, 150 files. And the front end is probably another... 10,000 with React and uh, Gatsby combined. So let's say the, the total code base, about 30,000 lines of code. Oh, wow. That's really not too, too bad if you consider all the functionality that you have to deal with. Like even the payment abstraction stuff is probably not ignorable, right? Yeah, I mean, that that still took a, a fair bit of time to to build out, especially with with the, the memberships that adds a whole new layer of, of complexity on top. Yeah, for sure. And by the way, how do you have this set up in terms of Git repos? Like, is each part of this application in its own repo, or do you have it all together? It started out as a massive mono repo, which I have since ended up splitting out, just because it made it a lot easier to to work with a few different contractors. You know, there's some parts where maybe I didn't want to share everything. You know, um, so the React app now is in a separate repo. Gatsby app, there's an open source part, which is obviously anybody can access. And then there's a a student theme where we have our, our shadowing and, and some of the course maker proprietary stuff, which is in, it's actually still in, in the mono repo, but we might might split that out in, in future. So yeah, it's it's now spread out a little bit. Right, and then the, those components they could be deployed independently, right? That's right. Yeah. So we when I mean, we use AWS Code Builds, we're we're quite 
you know, we've we've definitely embraced the AWS ecosystem and, and trying to use it for everything. So, you know, we're using their code build for CI and their container registry for, for storing Docker images, all, all that kind of thing. Nice. So speaking of Docker, by the way, do you happen to use it in development as well or no? Oh, yeah. Uh, mo- everything's Dockerized. Um, I don't, like when I'm running the apps locally, I don't use Docker. You know, I'll, I'll use like a, an installation of, of Postgres and I'm not, I'm not spinning up everything as, as Docker containers. But um, once once things get deployed, everything's Dockerized. And we that that definitely was was something that we we knew we were going to do from the beginning, right? Do you recall the decision around like knowing for sure you're going to go that route, or is it just because like well, all, all these major cloud providers like AWS they just have good container orchestration services ready to go? Well, our hand was forced in in some ways because we knew that we wanted to use the Elastic Container Service and these these Fargate tasks, so. Um, it's it's quite easy to work with them if everything is is already containerized. Um, sorry, if everything's already Dockerized. So that that was probably one of the main reasons why um, from from the beginning of the project we were using Docker. Okay, and just poking around the rest of your tech stack a bit, uh, you know, you mentioned you are using Postgres there for your database. Do you use anything else? Like, do you happen to use Celery and Redis for some of the fast API background working stuff or no? So far, we've been able to get away with just the the fast API background tasks, you know, which are a part of, so fast API is built on top of Starlet and Starlet offers this uh, background task for async processes that are, are not too time consuming. So it's, it's good for sending off an email, for example, if we had a, a longer running background task, then yeah, we'd, we'd probably bring in Celery, but we haven't had to do that so far because for the obvious long-running background tasks, like let's say building the Gatsby site, then we make use of a, a separate pipeline and that AWS Lambda instead. Right. Yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, using a Lambda as a long-running background task uh, back end seems like a reasonable solution. Like, yeah, seems like a, a well-thought-out one for sure. Because the cool thing about that is you can then make your Lambda really, you know, you can beef it up a lot give it a lot of CPU and RAM without really worrying about the cost. Yeah, that's kind of neat too, right? Because it's like normally in a typical setup, you'd have your background worker running Celery on some server with like X number of CPUs and memory. But if you did have that one task that really needs a lot more, it's like, well, you'd have to set up a whole other server just for that. But now you don't have to because the Lambda, it's like, well, I just want these resources. Exactly, yeah. Very cool. So by the way, uh, when it comes to setting up some type of like reverse proxy, do you have Nginx in front of all of this or no? Yeah, yeah. There's there's Nginx in front of it. Um, it's, and let me let me rephrase. So we use the, the AWS load balancer. And if if memory serves, is that using Nginx under the hood? I, I forget, I'd have to check. But um, certainly everything goes through the, the AWS load balancer. Right, do you happen to be using the ELB or ALB? ALB. Nice. So then if you're using the load balancer, do you have it hooked up also with uh, their certificate management service? What is it called? Like ACM, I think? Uh, we do. Um, we do make use of, of their ACM for individual student sites, like the, the static sites um, that basically just sitting in, in S3 buckets. Then we also use Let's Encrypt to, to generate certificates for those because uh, we, we offer custom domains. Um, 
So yeah, combination of ACM and Let's Encrypt. Oh, nice. Yeah, we can definitely get into that about the custom domains because, so I guess, yeah, if I were to sign up on your platform, would I typically get like my username.coursemaker.org? And then I can also, if I want to, hook that up to my own custom domain? That's right. So That's right, yeah. So when you sign up, you pick the name of your school, which is basically a, a sub, becomes a subdomain of Coursemaker. And then you, you also have the option to connect a, a custom domain, which can be a root domain or a subdomain. Um, by the way, you know, earlier you mentioned, or just before you mentioned that when it comes to like lightweight background tasks, like shooting off an email, fast API is fine. Uh, which email service do you use, by the way, to send out these transactional emails? So again, we're sticking with AWS. So it's the SES, the simple email service, which, uh, and we, we do that using the, the API. So how, how, how do you like that so far using SES? It's okay. Like, <laughs> like, like a lot of AWS services, um, you, you kind of have to figure things out. Setting up the, the templates and everything is a bit fiddly where you have to like register a template. And then if you want to update one, you've got to go through a bit of a process there. So, I mean, it's fine. It, it does the job. You know, if we weren't if we weren't using AWS for everything else, I doubt we would use the SES. Right. And now, speaking of AWS, did you look at other potential alternatives, or you just rolled with that because so many people use it, and you maybe used it in the past, so why not use it here? Well, let, let, let me put it this way: we we already knew a lot of AWS, right? It's what we we're familiar with, so it makes sense to go with what you're familiar with. The only question really was: do we want to go super MVP? You know, so we could even start things out on like a, a Heroku or some other platform as a service, or maybe even like the, the AWS equivalent, so LightSail, and, and keep things super lightweight, which I think for a lot of new startup products may, might be like perfectly fine. But as we've been talking about, you know, with things like the Gatsby previews and triggering lambdas and custom domains and all this other sort of stuff that you you we needed anyway to to offer the expected functionality of our platform, then I think it it made sense for us to embrace some of the the functionality and complexity of of the the Elastic Container Service and and that whole AWS ecosystem. Right. Do you want to get into a little bit of details of what it was like to get ECS up and running? Uh, not not too bad. I mean the the main challenge really was just uh, if I look at the the project files. I mean, let's see what was not so obvious. Yeah, I haven't used ECS in a bit, but I remember it was just basically a couple of JSON files, like a task definition and a service, basically. Yeah, you've got to have a, a task definition. And in in some of our CI, there were a few things that we had to do where the standard AWS CLI isn't quite good enough and you have to use the ECS CLI. So there's, there's a few gotchas there where the... AWS CLI can't quite do everything you need. So that's that's one little tweak that you've got to make if you, if you go down the route of using ECS. If you are looking to make everything work with AWS Secrets Manager, then you'll end up with like a ECS params YAML file in your, in your code base as well so that you can specify secrets that will get, um, get added to any service. And... Yeah, then apart from that, it's just sort of defining the task size in your uh, ECS YAML file, 
you got to specify things like the ARN of the task definition, any volumes that you're going to need. It's a bit like, reminds me a little bit of writing a, a Docker Compose file. Yeah, that's a good analogy. And by the way, when it comes to setting resource constraints like, you know, CPU and memory, uh, what does your fast API servers end up taking up? Not not too much. Um, you know, we, we're we right now at, at our current sort of early phase fine with half a virtual CPU and, and a gigabyte of RAM. If we've got a, a launch coming up, I might crank that up a bit. Um, same same on, on the database size. We're, we're fine with like a T3 small RDS for, for Postgres. Um, so yeah, it's it's not too bad. I think running all the infrastructure and everything varies between like 100 and $150 a month, depending on um, things like uh, the number of builds that get run and uh, code execution and, and that sort of thing. Right. Yeah, really, that is not too bad at all, considering you have the fundamental like infrastructure to just pretty easily scale up to, let's say you want to run 10 instances of the fast API server. Like you can do that, I guess, just like basically, you know, setting it to 10 and you're done. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's definitely built to scale. Right. And I guess that's the value in hiring someone else to do all that work for you. So you don't need to think about it instead of just maybe going, like you say before, like just maybe using Heroku initially. Yeah, it was, it was definitely a project where I wanted to do it uh, so that it, it was set up for the future. Right. So looking back now, do you think that was the right decision? Like hire someone, get it all set up like this versus uh, using Heroku early on? I think I possibly could have gone with AWS LightSail. Uh, I, I would have stuck in the, the AWS ecosystem because we're making use of a whole bunch of, of their other uh, tools and, and that sort of thing. Given that we're not using that much CPU and RAM on the servers and we've got some relatively small RDS instances, I'm, it may not have actually saved us that much money because although LightSail is generally a lot cheaper, you've still got to pay for the database and you've still got to... We'd, we'd probably want a couple of cores. So yeah, it might save us like 20, 30 bucks a month, but nothing, nothing too major. Right. So we've covered a lot of ground here in terms of your AWS setup, but are there any other AWS services that we haven't gone over yet that you use besides maybe something like Route 53? I think we've we've covered all the main ones. And yeah, I mean, Route 53 does does feature in there. But yeah, I think we've we've done a good tour of the, the AWS bits and bobs we're using. Okay. And do you have all of those bits and bobs included in your Terraform setup? Like all of it is managed through that? Uh, probably 80%. Yeah, there's a there's a few cheeky parts where we still need to to terraform it, but yeah, we've generally been quite good about it because we knew early in the project that it was going to be hard to go back and terraform things. So we tried to use terraform from the beginning as much as possible. Right. Do you have an example offhand of what you didn't decide to put in it because it was a little bit tricky? Like I, I don't know, maybe some like low level VPC stuff or something else. Uh, it's not even that. It's more like, let's say for some of the, the dev environment, you know, we have a dev and prod environment, then the 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 dev RDS is not terraformed because, and now if you want to go back and, and change that, then it's the, like the naming convention doesn't match with how we've we've set everything else up. So, you know, we'd, we'd potentially have to migrate, do a dump of the, the dev database, recreate it and maybe create a, a new database and then delete the old one because you can't rename a database in AWS. So, I mean, it's just little little things like that where there's just a bit of friction to 
harmonizing everything uh, those those are the sorts of times where you end up with a not everything perfectly terraformed yeah for sure now you mentioned dev environment is that basically just like a synonym for like a staging environment or do you actually run like dev environments on AWS? oh yeah yeah so that that's just synonym for staging environment which is identical to production with less resources right so when it came to that did you end up running your dev and prod environments in different ECS clusters, or did you keep them in the same cluster, but in a different like namespace or workspace, whatever they call it? Yeah, so they are in totally different AWS regions, not just for ECS, but everything, apart from those AWS services, which are global. Oh, nice. Yeah, I wasn't even thinking at the region level. So you do have them separated at that level as well. Yeah, totally, totally different regions. It just seemed like that that would be safer. Right. So did you end up going off the deep end too of having your production servers being uh, available across different regions? What, multi-AZ? Yeah, like being able to, well, this, you know, this starts to get to like intergalactic scale. Like imagine you have some EU customers and US customers, like do you have your application running in US East 1 as well as some, I don't know, whatever data centers they have in the EU? So we, we do not. Uh, everything's running in, in production in US East 1, but the the cool thing is that if we did want to enable that, it it wouldn't be much work at all. So we we have the option when when we feel like traffic warrants it. Yeah, I would imagine that's probably like a very late stage move to go that far. Yeah, because I mean it has I think some some cost implications. So when when the time is right, we'll we'll be ready. Right. Hopefully that comes uh, sooner than later because then you'll know the business is doing very well. Yes. <laughs> So speaking about though, like dev environments and prod, do you maybe want to walk us through what it's like to develop a feature locally and then get that up and running in production? Sure. So locally, we have a, a pretty decent set of, of tests and everything. While I'm running locally, like I say, I'll, I'll use uh, a Postgres installation that I have on, on my Mac. And I guess this is a little different to what I, I said earlier, but I, I might spin up the strappy headless uh, CMS in a, in a Docker container um, and then write the Python code for the new module, commit that, and then that goes into our CI pipeline. All the tests get run in, in the CI pipeline. We have uh, GitHub actions that are running on, on the feature branch, and then when things get merged into master, then it goes through the, the deployment with code build and in the code build process then everything gets uh like the the new docker images get created and uploaded to the the aws um, container registry ready for prod deploy which we trigger by uh creating a tag basically so that's the the cutting a release process um and then the images that are in the the container registry in the london region uh, get copied over. Do they get copied over? Well, yeah, we, I remember we we looked at this and possibly optimized it for cost, but there's, I'll have to check, but there's a process whereby um, when you're cutting a prod release, that Docker image is accessed and uh, everything in ECS is, is updated and, and redeployed. And yeah, so it's it's still at that stage where it sounds like quite a lot, but I can actually ship a feature test it in dev and have it in prod within like if somebody's if it's something urgent like an important fix i can get that whole thing done in an hour 
if it's you know a, a small feature that I'm working away on on casually, I can sort of finish coding the feature in the morning, test it in the staging environment in the afternoon, and have it shipped out to to prod by the end of the day. So that's that's still like quite a satisfying cadence. Very different for I'm sure listeners who are working in large companies where it's not always the way. Yeah, some large companies it's like well. You know, on the second Tuesday of the month, that is when things go live. Yeah. Yeah, I've been there. <laughs> but the setup here, that one hour roughly, if you know, if you need to get it out, is that basically just waiting for automated things to finish then? But you are at at the end of the day are basically just get pushing the code and then adding a tag and that's it? Yeah, yeah. It's it's automation, so building the Docker images mostly and, and running the, the deployments. All 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 automated steps that it's not like I'm uh, having to, to run any scripts or anything like that. Right. Yeah, that's very cool to see. And by the way, earlier you mentioned possibly using the secret manager provided by AWS, which I always forget the service name of. But are you using that in this project here? Yes, I am. I am using that. It's it's AWS Secrets Manager. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's cool how it, it plays well with all the other AWS um, services. The main The main thing we need it for is the ECS and defining the, the parameters there. Uh, so yeah, that's that's worked out pretty well. It's a bit pricey though. Like they, they charge you per secret, I believe, which seems a bit cheeky. Hmm. Do you happen to know like what you're paying for per secret? Yeah, 40 cents per secret per month, hmm. which is quite yeah. a lot actually. Yeah, so that that is definitely one of the, the downsides, particularly, you know, when we're so committed to the AWS ecosystem, um, stuff like the the Secrets Manager, I feel like they're taking advantage of the customer a little bit there with that sort of pricing. It kind of is, right? Because if you have, you know, straight API keys, paddle keys, email credential stuff, like before you know it, you're spending almost like the same amount of what you would spend just getting like a light sale server, just like the whole server. Well, on the flip side, you can always put all your secrets in version control directly and don't worry about it. <laughs> Yeah, uh, probably won't rush to do that, but yeah. Yeah, I wonder though, I mean, yeah, I don't think people will get too trolly over that. Like you could probably make one secret and just like delimit it with a special character and then like parse it. But yeah, that's like starting to get into like some ridiculous level of trying to escape paying per secret. Yeah, yeah, there's there's definitely been uh, over the course of this project a few times where I was like, I could do it all the, you know, figure out a, a workaround for this and write all the code and everything. And then I sort of do a mental math calculation of an hourly billing rate for myself. And I, I realized that I should probably just pay the money and that, that that's a better use of time. Yeah, for sure. Plus in this case, it's like, well, my bill's a hundred bucks a month. If I'm saving 40 cents, it's totally not worth it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. By the way, you know, one aspect about your development environment, I've worked with Lambdas a little bit. Like what was your experience like working with local Lambda development? Ooh, I mean... Basically, because we're using the the Dockerized Lambda, then the the local development experience is spin up the Docker container and have a look at the the Docker logs and and check it's doing what you expect it to do. But there are potentially like areas where that doesn't work that well, especially if, like, let's say once things get up into the the Lambda environment maybe there's an IAMS permission issue with accessing some other server. Maybe you need to configure the load balancer to allow something. Maybe it's usually permissions. Debugging that, I haven't 
haven't yet found like a really elegant way to do that. Um, so that the, the process has been looking at the, the Docker spin up and then unfortunately trial and error with, with the rest, which, yeah, there were definitely a few long nights getting that working. Yeah. Totally relatable with those IAM policies or whatever. It was like, does it work now? Nope. What does it need now? Does it work now? Nope. And then they can repeat that for four hours. Yep. <laughs> Sad, but true. Yeah. But what was like the actual, did you end up ever messing with something like SAM, uh, that tool they have for being able to run a Lambda locally uh, or no? No, haven't, haven't really needed that just because I guess we've, we've just got the one Lambda and yeah, it was, it was fiddly to get it working, but once it's, it's working, it, it's kind of fine. It's, maybe if we were going to add some more, we'd, we'd have to look into the, that sort of, of, of tooling. Right. Have you thought about using Lambdas for things in the future or did you experience this once and you're like, well, kind of works, but maybe don't want to go down that route again? No, I mean, it's pretty good. It's, it's definitely something that I'd consider working with in the future um, for additional functionality. I don't have a specific use case in mind right now, but I, I've definitely not been put off Lambdas. Right. And by the way, just on the topic of like features of your application, do you ever have any need to do any reoccurring tasks? Like, you know, every day at 2 a.m. do this thing? Not really. So yeah, we, we don't have any cron, cron server or anything running for that sort of thing. I think that's maybe because we're, we're at the stage now where some things uh, I, can, I can run manually, like let's say um, the process for renewing certificates on custom domains you've got to do that every three months with let's re let's re uh, let's encrypt sorry and so for that you know we have like some some custom internal tooling and a cli and, and that sort of thing but yeah haven't haven't automated all of that yet you know when you're early stage and, and bootstrapping you have to sort of hold back sometimes on the temptation to prematurely optimize things because you don't know if the next week or the week after you're going to end up changing it quite a lot and then your automation would break. Yeah, for sure. Now, on the topic of that, combined with like internal tooling and stuff, did you find yourself spending a lot of time creating like a custom internal admin dashboard for yourself or how did you go about just man managing, you know, the business itself? Yeah, so there was a fair bit of time spent building... Um, super user accounts so that it's easy for me to go in and, and review the, the courses that authors are creating it's just just to make it nice and easy for me to be able to give authors walkthroughs of how to do certain things um, and also so that I can easily check if people are uploading videos that aren't in line with our terms and conditions which is always a worry when you're running a platform like this uh, thankfully, like things are still at the, the scale now where I, I am able to review different, uh, new courses as they, as they come online in the platform, but eventually that will become untenable. And then I'll have to have a, have a think about how to do that. Uh, and then in terms of internal dashboards, yeah, we have some CLI tools, which run different database queries and combine them so that I can see, okay, who's connected their Stripe account who's started with Paddle, who's uploaded their first video, when was the last login, like the interactions and, and that sort of thing, which is, is really helpful just so that you can get a feel for um, which users are engaged and which users might need a bit of prompting. And as, as part of that as well, I, I did a 
I did a MailChimp integration so that, you know, I, I could set up some sort of email flows and, you know, provide provide a bit of value there as well. There's a free trial and whilst people are in the free trial, it's it's good to be able to just check in and, and see if there's any questions or um, improvements that might be made. I'm, a, I'm finding, I'm a bit, well, I mean, I'm, I'm happy enough with MailChimp, but I have heard very good things about ConvertKit. So who knows, maybe, maybe in the future, I'll, I'll switch out to ConvertKit instead. Right. Yeah. I think at least when it comes to those email campaign software, it's not too, too bad to move from one platform to the next, as long as you're willing to learn the new tool. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a bit low priority to learn a, a completely new tool. But what I will definitely be doing is offering it as an integration in CourseMaker so that if people, if authors have ConvertKit, then they can just connect their, their ConvertKit. And then when new students sign up, then that'll get added to their email list. So that's quite high on the, the current feature requests from, from different authors. I'll probably start off with a Zapier integration because you can do everything through Zapier. So no matter what email marketing tool people are using, they'll be able to get something going with Zapier. But then I'll I'll do some specific integrations for MailChimp and ConvertKit because there are there are limitations with Zapier. You're allowed like a hundred zaps a month, I think, on the free tier. And I don't I don't want authors to have to feel like they need to buy another tool to, to use CourseMaker. Right. Yeah. Funny enough, I was just about to comment on that one. So a third-party course platform that I have been using, yeah, it feels like it's a little bit nickel and dimey when you're like, oh, by the way, like if you want this feature, you have to go buy like these five other services. Yeah. The worst one historically, I'm not going to name and shame any competitors, but people who know will know is is where for the, the VAT handling or the, the sales tax is they're like, you can just connect to Quaderno or Octobat or any of these external third-party services. And it's like, yeah, but that's another 40 bucks a month or whatever, um, which I don't think is cool. So definitely improved on that with CourseMaker because that's a pain point I felt myself. Right, for sure. And by the way, you know, you kind of mentioned that um, some of these features that you're building are based on customer feedback. Do you have any tools that you use or any custom like URL endpoints on your site that people can go to to submit feature requests or no? Not yet. I mean, at the moment it's it's email and I do a, an onboarding session with, with new course authors. And especially like in these early days, I'm, I'm also doing quite a bit of coaching as well with course authors about how to create technical courses if they're not sure, if they have questions. Because, I mean, that's one of the, the nice things about being a course author is I'm, I'm happy to share what's worked for me and, you know, share things like my curriculum templates and that sort of thing. So trying to add value in, in ways that you, you can only really do when you're a small, scrappy startup. It's it's tough for the, the big guys to offer that sort of tailored personal service. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because like I, as you were saying that, I'm like, that's an amazing thing. Like it's so cool to be in that position to be able to help people one-on-one -on -one instead of just like their customer 4,017. Like there's nothing you can do about them individually. Yeah, it's it's the old Paul Graham doing things that don't scale kind of mentality, which I, I really buy into. I, I I definitely buy into like customer service being a part of the the products. Like it, it it really really matters. So pay a lot of attention to that. Yeah, I I've I've kind of oscillated a bit on whether or not I I should 
have a an endpoint or a page on the on the site to collect requests for features. I'm not sure if if that can if you can end up getting some signals there that are actually noise where where people give you a a, a sort of a long shopping list of things that they uh, maybe are nice to have and then you're not sure if it's a must have whereas if people specifically request something then that that tends to be um, a strong signal that yes this is a feature i should build yeah for sure yeah some of those like feature collecting things get weird because i remember the microsoft terminal it's a really popular terminal for windows and they have one of those feature collection things and they're like yeah we implement what's like at the top of the list but like I don't know, like a year ago, what was at the top of the list was like emoji support. But in the meanwhile, like you couldn't even zoom in and out with hotkeys, you know, like there were so many core things that in my opinion were missing, but folks just want like the shiny stuff. And I don't know, it feels like a weird thing to base your decisions on just the community specifically. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's always a tricky one. Um, and it's it's one of those things where it's great if I can actually jump on a, a quick Zoom call with with an author and, and talk talk to them about what they're going to use the feature for and, and that sort of thing. And I've, I've been able to do that for, for some of the, the new features we're rolling out. That's always super wonderful when people are willing to give you a bit more time for, for that kind of thing. Right. And by the way, on the topic of just like customer support and things like that, do you do anything for your course instructors to assist their students taking the courses? Like some way for folks to open issues or comment on specific videos? And then if so, does the instructor get like an email notification? So right now it's it's email where the author specifies their contact address and everything for students to, to drop them a note. But I do have fairly high on the the request list, a Slack integration so that students can go into a, a Slack uh, space, workspace. Um, so I, I think that's probably the way I'm, I'm going to go Got a few a few more urgent things first, but um, that's been I I think that's probably the the best way to to go about this. the The alternative is like the forum routes and and that kind of thing, but it's easy for for forums to become sort of ghost towns where and nobody's talking. Or I guess you can go with the the discuss integration and and let people comment on on videos. But weirdly, that's that's been a a less requested feature. Interesting. Yeah, it is a tricky balance because it's like the Slack integration or Discord for the real-time chat is really nice, definitely. Like you can't really beat just having real-time communication with someone to solve a problem. But then it's like, well, what happens in two months from now if someone else goes through the video, they have the same problem, but the buffer in Slack has been removed or whatever. So now it's like, it's it makes it very hard to find answers that were written in the past. Yeah, very, very true. By the way, I have I have a couple of, I, I know that we're, we're probably approaching time but i have a, a couple of things sort of public service announcements that i think listeners might find useful um so i'll, I'll just quickly jump into those if, if that's all right nick yeah sure so one one gotcha that we've encountered is as you are working with a headless cms like strappy or maybe, maybe this is quite specific to strappy um you do have to watch out for database migration issues. This is something that we encountered where like under the hood, Strapi uses Bookshelf.js for SQL databases. And they have this sort of wrapper around that package for simple CRUD operations. And Strapi doesn't really support traditional database migration. So every every time you make a change in for a content model, behind the scenes that's done 
in Strapi Core. And if you have more complex database migrations, it could be just like the sheer number of relations or adding index or extensions. Most of the time, Strapi just handles that no problem, but sometimes it can it can get stuck and you end up with in a, a pretty awkward scenario where like you potentially have to write your own migration scripts um, and sort of rescue your database. So that's, that's something that I know they're working on in Strapi. It's a major addition in, in version four, which is scheduled for end of this year that they're going to be rolling that out. But I, I think that's something listeners should be aware of. There's okay. no, it's, it, if you're used to Django or, well, a lot of different RMs where you have this ability to generate migrations and sort of easily see uh, and trigger when you're going to run those migrations, then th- there's nothing really like that in Strapi at the moment. So you do have to watch out. Hmm. Definitely good to know. And I guess on the topic of migrations for the fast API setup, do you just run these migrations as part of your deployment pipeline? Like how does that end up being run? Yeah, yeah, it's it's um all with SQL Alchemy and Alembic is the sort of the standard migration manager in, in Python. And so yeah, we just run the Alembic upgrade command as part of the CI pipeline and we've never had any issues with that. That's all good. Nice. Yeah, it's good to see that you are running your migrations like in an automated way. Like you're not you're not having to manage that manually in some type of like sidestepping part of the deployment process that you do by hand. No, no, no. Uh, that's that's all automated. And I guess another public service announcement would be that Fast API is is awesome. Um, I've I've worked on some pretty complex Flask apps in the past where we ended up over time building out a lot of what Fast API gives you out of the box. For example, we ended up rolling, well, bringing in a a library called Flask Injector to do dependency injection in Flask, whereas FastAPI has this super elegant dependency injection system baked into it, which makes testing just wonderfully easier. And in your FastAPI routes, you just declare a dependency and and there it is available to use in in the route and so that can be anything from a client working with your email provider through to a database session it's all just easy to define and and work with so that means that if you want to mock it in your tests uh it's very easy to do so so for me fast api's dependency injection is is the killer feature and then on top of that you get you know all the async stuff, it is legitimately way more performant than than Flask on par with Node.js or, or Golang. And you get documentation out of the box because it's built with the open API standards. And you, just by writing endpoints, you're writing documentation so that you can easily share documentation for your API endpoints. Um, and then the other really useful thing, which in complex Flask applications... I've ended up having to write by hand is it works with Pydantic for defining your your endpoint schemas. So you get this automatic validation just by defining like through Python type hints what the input values are going to be for a particular endpoint as a Pydantic schema. It'll it'll then throw a validation error if you're getting sort of dirty input or something unexpected. Whereas in Flask, I mean you'd have to write all that custom code yourself. Yeah, Fast API is just like significantly better in 
multiple ways. So I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty confident at this point that over the next two years or so, it'll become the go-to for for building APIs in in Python. Probably the exception to that would be, let's say you want to build like a CMS or something that involves a lot of HTML templates, Jinja two templates. Then you know I'd stick with Django for that. Right. Yeah, I don't have any first-hand experience using FastAPI yet, but I do know Flask 2 recently came out with some introductory or, I guess, initial support for doing async requests. But yeah, FastAPI, I definitely looked at like their getting started guide and, and looked pretty interesting for sure. And I actually wonder, it's weird that their name is uh, FastAPI, but can you actually use it for doing server render templates as well? Like, can you just return back a template response using something like Jinja 2 instead of returning JSON? Yeah, you can. You can if you if you want to. It it works fine with Jinja too. Uh, that's I think all functionality that borrows from what it builds on the the Starlet. So yeah, I have a few like random login pages, for example, in in CourseMaker after an email confirmation that are just Jinja two templates that didn't really fit into the React app. Right. By the way, we're sort of jumping around a little bit here, but you know, before you mentioned uh, handling database migrations, but on the topic of just databases in general and maybe like disasters or unexpected events, uh, what do you do right now for backing up your database in addition to maybe also backing up user uploaded files if you happen to need to do that? Yeah, I mean, so we've got the the standard AWS RDS um, backups configured, right? So you get a, we do a daily database backup and... What was the other question, sorry? Uh, just around potentially backing up other files, like videos that folks upload or maybe um, zip files for, for individual files. Yeah, so we, we keep copies of both the the raw uh, S3 upload and then also the, the trans, after it's been through the, the transcoding pipeline, the, the final output video files as well. So that that gives the, the protection, right? If something goes wrong with the the final videos, then we can run them through the transcoding pipeline again from the raw. And if something goes wrong with the raw, then we can, well, we've, we've got the transcoded final product that, and since they're, they're in two different places, so you've got S3 and then you've got Cloudflare, then that, that gives us some security there. And we'll do periodic um, sort of cold storage snapshots of the raw S3 video and, and other files as well. Nice. So do you move those over to something like Glacier? Yeah, to Glacier. Yeah, that's definitely very helpful, right? Because those files, it's like you're never really touching them, but you might want to still have them. Might as well take advantage of long-term storage, which is way cheaper. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, and that that's it's not actually a benefit we'd really considered with the whole static site setup, but it, it turned out pretty nicely. Right. And when you, know, when you mentioned before about redoing the transcoding process, that's really what, just an API call to Cloudflare? Exactly, yeah. Very so, cool. I mean, that, that that's one of the, the advantages of using a, a provider for the, the transcoding. I mean, maybe maybe one day we'll we'll look to set up our own transcoding pipeline, but it's quite a big undertaking and not really worth doing right now. Yeah, I haven't used it firsthand, but I think AWS might have a service for that one, possibly. They, they do, yeah, but we, we did a bunch of calculations and I think Cloudflare worked out quite a bit cheaper um, or it, it may just have been that there are a few features that they had that were very attractive. I'm trying to remember what our, yeah, we had a long back and forth about that one, if I recall, because there, there are quite a few transcoding providers out there. Can't remember off the top of my head, sorry. That's okay. And by the way, on the topic of Cloudflare, does that mean you're using that also as a CDN in front of all of your stuff instead of using CloudFront on AWS? 
actually we we do still use CloudFront on AWS. Uh, so I guess Cloudflare is is a, a random anomaly amongst the sea of everything else being AWS. Right. Are there other anomalies out there where I might just be using something else on the side? <laughs> uh, any other anomalies? Hmm. Well, that's almost like a weird thing because if there were many anomalies, they wouldn't be anomalies. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Let me. I think that's the only one actually. Yeah. Yeah. Just that one. Okay. And on the topic of like logging and metrics and you know getting stats like that, do you just use um, CloudWatch and AWS or no? Okay. So you, you've caught me. You've you've uh, you've found another anomaly. Um, or rather, rather jogged my memory on on one. So we use Sentry for for tracking errors. Basically, have you have you heard of Sentry before? Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, it's 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 just quite a a slick tool that helps us out with keeping track of um, of any errors and exceptions. So yeah, that's that's another uh, non AWS service that we make use of. Okay. So when it comes to getting notified of specific errors, like maybe some endpoints throwing a 500, do you get notified in some way through like a text message or an email or a Slack notification? Yeah, we've got email and and Slack notifications set up for for errors when when they occur. Okay. Because it's always interesting to talk about this one because like on one side of the story, getting notified of errors is really nice. But also if you go overboard with notifications, sometimes it's like, the important stuff gets lost in the weeds because you know you're just getting so many notifications. Do you try to reserve those like direct notifications for like really things that need to be addressed right now because it's a real big problem, or like you know maybe do you get like a Slack notification if someone encounters a 404? Yeah, I mean the the way I do it is that I'll certainly for anything that's not production that won't go uh, to my phone, but if it's if it's production, it goes to the phone. Um, just, just little little things like that because you're right. Like you can get desensitized if you're getting too many notifications of errors. So I, I do try and watch out for that. But touch wood, um, haven't haven't had too many uh, serious production incidents to to think about. Nice. Now you say not too much, but do you maybe want to share one? Like what's the latest thing that went wrong that you happened to fix? If you don't mind sharing. I guess the it's not something that was actually easy to pick up in in the logs but there was a change in the the cloudflare api so that the quality of video that the bit rate that we were specifying it wasn't guaranteeing the, the quality level that we wanted it was actually the i think the cloudflare player right they they have a, a front-end player and so we we ended up swapping out the cloudflare player for a third-party one which is that shaka player i mentioned near the beginning of the episode which allowed us to to guarantee the the quality level. So that one was was quite a tricky one because the only way to really notice that is to be looking at the videos of the of the different courses. So I mean, luckily, you know, it's that's something that I do most days. But um, yeah, that's that's quite a tricky one to set up automated alerting for. Yeah, for sure. And plus, it's like almost a little bit tricky too. I guess even if folks message you directly and they're like, hey. I go and play back the video and, you know, it just looks blocky or distorted or, you know, low bit rate types of things. You might instinctively think like, okay, like what operating system do they have? What browser do they have? What version browser do they have? What device are they using? Like you go through all those steps before realizing it could be actually the source. Yeah, it was, I mean, luckily in in this case, um, it was quite clear when I was having a look as well. Uh, I could see that the 
the quality, the resolution wasn't as high as it would usually be. But yeah, sometimes when you're getting reports like that, you, you question like, has this person just got a, a poor internet connection or trying to view things on on a, a weird operating system or a mobile. Um, video video is tricky. There's another reason why I'm not rushing to, to set up a custom transcoding pipeline because I think there's a fair bit of complexity in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's so many different uh, gotchas around that one. It's like a, an endless can of worms, basically. Mm. So, by the way, in terms of like other potential services you might be using outside of AWS, do you have anything hooked up kind of just to hit like a health check endpoint on your main site just to make sure it's coming back with the 200? Uh, we were using Uptime Robot. And I believe last week they announced that like they were changing their free tier. So we, we might have to move away from them. Uh, but yeah, we, we've had them in place for uh, a few months. Hold on, hold on. I need to interrupt there. Do you want to give us the rundown on what's changing about that one? Because I happen to use them for a number of sites, but I didn't get notified of that, or maybe I just didn't read the email. Yeah, the email that they sent me said that they have decided to support custom linked domain status pages to pro plan users only. So that gets me thinking maybe either I've got to upgrade to the pro plan or I need to look for an alternative to Uptime Robot. So that's that's a bit of a to be decided one right now. Right. Have you looked into other uh, status page services as well? Because that's like a whole nother thing too, I guess. Like just displaying your uptime as like a chart with incident reports and things like that, besides just like, hey, is it up or down? Not not yet. Any recommendations? Uh, not off the top of my head. I don't want to name names because I feel bad because I'm sure there's like five of them that are great that I just forgot. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. There's a whole host that that I've used in the past, um, but different names are escaping me. But yeah, I, I'm I'm probably gonna go down the the research route here to to have a look into a, a replacement for Uptime Robot. Right. So maybe now we can talk a little bit about uh, your best tips and lessons learned from building and deploying this application. Do you want to give us? Uh, you know, they can either be technical or just uh, takeaways that you've gotten in general. Okay. So recapping. Fast API definitely recommend if you're building an API in Python. I think that's safe to say from your multiple public service announcements. <laughs> uh, and then there's the strappy database migration gotchas to be aware of. So I think those are two important takeaways. And then the great the great thing about working with something like the whole AWS ecosystem and setting it up properly with Terraform is that everything is now ready for scale. But I would say if you're bootstrapping something which is less complex, you know, not not to put anybody's idea down or anything, but you know, if you're building like a to-do list app, then throwing the whole ECS and everything is is probably overkill. And in those sorts of of scenarios, then uh, something like Heroku or Lightsail probably makes a lot more sense. I think you you have to sort of judge the project and the amount of of technical complexity when it's gonna make sense to go with something that's more a platform as a service rather than having to do all the infrastructure as a service. Uh, unfortunately, in the episode, I wasn't able to go through the details of the custom domain setup, but that that was quite an involved, complex process. So if you're looking to do that in any of your projects, be aware. I'd say for payments, Stripe's a great choice. Would would definitely recommend uh, working with them because they're API and documentation and everything is is really great. And for deploying static sites, 
Gatsby, definitely a solid choice because you get the whole Gatsby ecosystem of plugins. Um, so highly recommended. Nice. I think, yeah, that's, that's probably a, a good point to leave it. Lots of, lots of, uh, trying to think if there's any, any other profound lessons that I can convey. Well, I can definitely think of a follow-up question based on one of your answers, which was, you know, I think that was a very well put where you said, you know, maybe you should start off with using EC2 directly or Lightsail or whatever, if you don't have like a, you know, a really big application, but we didn't get a chance to talk about this, but maybe we can talk about it now. You know, you are using ECS and Fargate. Did you happen to compare using uh, ECS versus Kubernetes, or did you just leave that decision up to the contractor that you hired? I, I left that one up to the contractor, and I, I think they went with ECS because that was what they were more familiar with. But at the same time, I do have this this kind of feeling that there would be more complexity to manage with Kubernetes. That, that could be wrong. Uh, I know that with the AWS managed Kubernetes, as the name implies, it's managed, so there's, there's probably less to, to consider. But I, I've just worked with DevOps engineers in the past who spent like weeks setting up and configuring a Kubernetes cluster so that it was like really fit for purpose and everything. So I was a bit wary there, but uh, it's to be honest, it's not something that I'm super knowledgeable about. So I, I could be entirely wrong. But what I would say is that people were telling me like two years ago that ECS was going to be like completely phased out and, and EKS was the future and everything. But there doesn't seem to be that many signs of that yet seems like both both options are still pretty vibrant. I don't know if you've heard anything different, Nick. No, I'm on board with that. Like they're definitely both being, as far as I understand, maintained. And, you know, if you happen to be using Fargate, you can use that as an abstraction over either of them. So I guess they're still treating ECS as uh, like a main thing they're doing. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely the impression I've got. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not too worried about it at the moment. If a use case comes around where EKS makes more sense, then maybe I'll think about it then. You know that there might be scenarios where in the future we want to allow um, people to install or configure custom dependencies for the code execution, and then in in that scenario maybe we'd need something more like EKS. But that's that's something that we haven't thought through in in detail yet. That's more on the like the long term roadmap. So Chris, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Thanks very much, Nick. Really enjoyed having a chat to you. Yeah, it was awesome. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Yep. People can check out CourseMaker at coursemaker.org. If you're a developer or data scientist who wants to create an online course on your own site, uh, check out CourseMaker. It's got things like interactive coding lectures, and it's, it's all tailored with software development courses in mind. And you can catch up with me and, and chat to me on Twitter, where I'm at Chris Samiula or LinkedIn. Yeah, all, all my contact details and everything you'll, you'll find on the CourseMaker site. So uh, yeah, look forward to chatting, hopefully with some listeners. Cool. And yeah, I'll make sure to drop all those links into the show notes as well. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.